I'm so uh, just happy to be here uh, on this morning uh, with Grace. I, like I was telling the um, uh, first service, uh, I get to come back every year, and it's always a different group of people. And uh, I guess, you know, Dave, Dave likes me enough to keep inviting me back, so I guess it didn't go too bad the last time I was here. And I will say that you guys keep showing up, but again, it's always a different group of people. So <laughs> some of you, this is your first time uh, hearing from me. So. Uh, I hope that you will wish you were here if you're somewhere else next year, uh, if I get a chance to come back again. Um, if you will, open your Bibles to First uh, John, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. First John, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. First John, Second John, Third John, Jew, Revelation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Keep hearing pages slip. Verse seven, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Over 200 years ago, a young black boy was born into slavery on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay in Talbot County, Maryland. When he was about 12 years old, his master's wife began to teach him how to read. And he described her as a woman who treated him as she supposed one ought to treat another human being. His master disapproved of educating the slave. Uh, because he believed that literacy would encourage the boy to desire freedom. His master's wife eventually agreed, but he secretly taught himself how to read and write. After escaping to the north, he soon became a nationally recognized writer, orator, and leader of the abolitionist movement in Massachusetts and New York. He published his first biography in 1845. Some of you may have heard of it and him. The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Because it was an eloquent piece of literature, many believed a black boy could, couldn't have written it. Despite this, the book was reprinted nine times in three years, with 11,000 copies circulating in the United States. In the autobiography, he spoke of Christian slaveholders in such a tone and manner that he thought it was necessary to make it clear in his appendix that he was indeed a Christian. In that appendix, uh, he goes on to describe the inconsistency of slaveholders who also profess to be Christians. This is what he says. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, 
together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stillers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. He goes on the right. We see the thief preaching against death and the adulterer against adultery. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and the good of souls. Douglas rightly exposed the inconsistency of those who participated in American chattel slavery and also practiced Christianity. And like the Apostle John in our text, Douglas saying, something ain't right. John is writing to fellow Christians who were dealing with a group that had left the community because they rejected the teachings of the apostle. This group claimed to have fellowship with God while also claiming to be without sin, denying that Jesus is the Christ, denying that Jesus came by blood, hating other believers, and justifying a pattern of habitual sin. And our text boldly declares that hate for a fellow Christian is a violation of Christ's commandment to love one another, and it reveals that we are not abiding in him, and he is not abiding in us. So I plead with every one of you this morning to abide in Christ and the word of God so that you are enabled to love as he has loved you. This morning I have four points instead of three, so I'm breaking some rules, but I want you to bear with me. I'm going to try to get you guys out of here at 11.50, or at least I'm going to be done at 11.50, Lord willing. Uh, but point one, Christ's commandment and the gospel that you've received from the beginning is sufficient. Christ's commandment and the gospel that you received from the beginning is sufficient. Number two, our lives should be a genuine reflection of Christ's teaching, living as he lived. Our lives should be a genuine reflection of Christ's teaching, living as he lived. Three, a failure to love and a disposition of hate towards fellow Christians is a declaration that you are not a child of God, but a child of darkness. And then four, you are unable to love unless God enables you to love. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Father, we confess that we are broken. We confess that we uh, have uh, wicked hearts apart from your spirit doing something supernatural in our lives. And I pray and ask that you would uh, grant us grace, that you would use me as your mouthpiece. Father, that you would guard me from error. And as I preach and as I teach your word, Father, that your people would be edified and that you would be glorified. Father, you are sufficient, and we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 7 of our text, John addresses his readers as beloved or as dear friends. It's clear that John is writing to Christians in our text. Twice in our text and throughout the letter of John, he warmly assures his readers that he has confidence that they are children of God. 1 John 1 and 4 says, And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. 1 John 2.12 I am writing to you, little children, 
because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So Jonah's affectionate and pastoral tone in our text shows us that the, one of the reasons that he's writing is to provide assurance and encouragement. Because he knows that he's getting ready to say some really hard things. And what he does not want to do, he does not want them to assume that he's saying, hey, I'm writing to y'all because you are, are not Christians and that you are not believers. And I'm saying these things to you because y'all got some things y'all got to clean up, right? John is saying, no, 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 no. I am writing to you because you are brothers, because you are beloved, because you have heard these things, you have seen these things, you, you know the gospel, right? I want to warn you that among you there are false teachers, and there are men who are not of you. And I want to give you the tools to, number one, examine yourself, because that still needs to take place, but two, to identify and discern the difference between false teachers He continues this by explaining that he isn't writing or giving them uh, a new doctrine when he says, I'm writing to you no new commandment. On the contrary, John says that he's simply reminding them of what they've heard from the beginning when they received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They also heard the commandment. And in this sense, the commandment is old. At the same time, it is, not, it is new, not because John has some type of new revelation for his, for his readers, but because, as one commentator put it, it's the new command of Jesus as revealed in John 13, 34. It was also an old command. It was something his readers had heard long ago when they first received the gospel. And this is where John distinguishes himself from false teachers. Because due to the false nature and shallow, shallowness of their heresy, false teachers are always in need of some type of new revelation to tickle the ears of their prey. And this is sometimes, we, sometimes as Christians, we get caught up in the same thing. Somehow the gospel all of a sudden becomes boring. Or we feel like the gospel is insufficient in order to uh, uh, evangelize and to call people to Jesus. So we try to do new things, right? Either we go into the text, right, to try to change up what the text actually says or add to the text because we don't think that the gospel is exciting enough. Or we try to somehow uh, uh, draw people in with one thing and then we give them the gospel when they get here. And John is saying, no, the gospel is sufficient. The gospel has the power to save. Like, Jesus doesn't need your help. The Holy Spirit doesn't need your help. You're called to preach, and you're called to teach, and you're called to share the gospel with other believers. I mean, with, other, with unbelievers. We don't have to make the gospel look attractive. We don't have to dress the gospel up. The gospel is sufficient. And John aims to draw their attention to the sufficiency of this gospel by reminding them of what they already possess and what they've already believed. In the second half of verse 8, the text speaks briefly to the type of life the scriptures should produce. And John is basically trying to get us to see that as believers, our lives should be a genuine reflection of Christ's teachings living as he lived. John says that this commandment is true in him and in you. He again expresses his confidence in the salvation of his readers while also preparing them for the warning that will follow in the next verse. 
His use of this word true in our text is unusual uh, since this, uh, I guess, in compared to how it's used throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, one commentary uh, points out that the, throughout the text, throughout the New Testament, the word consistently, consistently means true as opposed to false in relation to a flat fact or claim. But in verse 8, John uses it to mean real or genuine as, a pers- as opposed to just true. He goes on to write, because darkness is passing away and the true light or genuine light is already shining. So what is John saying here? Some commentators suggest that this reference to darkness passing away is somehow eschatological, and I think it could be that, but I don't think that that's where John is kind of trying to get his, his readers' minds to go. Based on the context of this book, as well as what John is actually about to write in the next verse, it seems that he is impressing upon his audience that this new commandment should be genuinely expressed in the way they live their lives. So in other words, if they are in Christ, their actions should reflect the words of their Savior's commands. Now, darkness is repeatedly used in this letter as a metaphor, and in all of John's writings actually, as a metaphor for a sinful lifestyle, and light is used as a metaphor for God and goodness. All right, so John is painting a picture of what happens in the hearts and minds of genuine believers. That the idea of darkness passing away describes what happens in the Christian life as the light of Christ begins to shine on their hearts. Sinful practices decrease. Righteous living increases. Our hearts and minds and affections and actions move in the direction of Jesus. So think, think about a, 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 a traditional day, right? 4 a.m., 3 a.m., it's dark outside. All of a sudden, you outside, you can't see that well. It's not very clear, but again, you know, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., depending on what uh, daylight savings time thing. I hate that we do that, but that's not going to go there, all right? Depending on sun may start to come up at 5 a.m., right? may start to come up at 6 a.m., and then slowly, like, you begin to able to see better and clearer, right? And this is what happens in the life of believers, that as the light of Christ begins to shine on your heart and in your life. You begin to see clear, right? You begin to see what is good and what is bad. You begin to see uh, what is right and what is wrong. You begin to see and be able to discern the difference between truth and and the difference between false doctrine. All of a sudden, the sinful things that you once loved, slowly as the light of Christ begins to shine in your life, you begin to love those things less, and you begin to love the things of God more and more. Right? But this should happen in the life of every single believer. That as Jesus and as the Holy Spirit begins to work in you, the, the scales that are currently, like, that were once blinding your eyes from being able to see the beauty of Jesus and the preciousness of the gospel, all of a sudden begin to fall off. And that's why over a period of time, the longer you're a believer, the more beautiful you see Jesus. And the more you begin to love the body of believers. We have a seven-month-old, and he was, uh, he was born in December. So I, maybe he's eight months now. I can't keep up. I, 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 I gave this same illustration in the last, uh, well, something I still haven't counted what, what he actually is now. But he, he's getting there. It changes every month. <laughs> um, 
But he, he was born in, in December, December 28. I know his birthday, so I, I get points for that. And uh, my wife nursed him, and, you know, she started giving him um, table food right around six months. Um, doctor told us we have to do that. I didn't really want to do that, number one, because those diapers start looking a little different. <laughs> and we started introducing, introducing that. And then number two, it's just like my boy's growing up too fast, right? And he's a big boy. He's a solid kid, too, especially when we started giving him table food. He used to just be big and soft. Now he's just... Solid. I feel like I'm p picking up a little man-child. And as you guys can see, I'm fairly tall, and my wife is, is up above average height for, for a woman, so um, we're raising Sasquatch, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm afraid of, I, I'm trying to find new ways of discipline, especially as they enter the teenage years, when they get ready to get, because I'm probably not going to be very intimidating. I suspect that they will be looking down on me at some point. Anyways, back to my point. My point is, is that over time, over the last seven, eight months, if our son was not ready to eat table food, was not even desiring table food, was not growing, uh, was not developing mentally and cognitively, I got that word right, um, it, it, we would say something was wrong, right? That, that over time, as you're nourishing this child, and as we're feeding this child, and as we're taking care of this child, and as we're talking to him and engaging him and teaching him, if he was still acting as if he was one or two months old, we would say something is wrong. And I tell you, Christian, I don't know how long you've been believers. I'm sure most, some of you are new believers. Some of you, you know, have been around the block a few times. Some of you are elder believers, right? You, you, you have been, you know, a believer for 20 and 30 years. The reality is, is that over the course of your life, you should be able to say, I love Jesus more than I loved him 10 years ago. I loved him more than I loved him 20 years ago. I loved the church more than I loved the church a year ago. Because if that progression is not happening, something's wrong. And this is all that text is talking about when it's talking about the, 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 the light beginning to shining, beginning to, beginning to shine on the hearts of the believers. It says because the darkness is passing away like every single day. The darkness is passing away in your heart, and the light is shining. It's already shining. It doesn't mean that it's dark, and all of a sudden, it's bright lights. That means it was once dark, but it's slowly passing away, and the light is getting brighter and brighter. Near the end of the appendix, Douglas clarifies his statement so that readers understand exactly what he's saying and what he's not saying. He says this, Such is, very briefly, my view of religion of this land. And to avoid any misunderstanding, growing out of the use of general terms, I mean by the religion of this land, that which is revealed in the words, deeds, and actions of those bodies, north and south, calling themselves Christian churches and yet in union with slaveholders. It is against religion as presented by these bodies that I have felt it my duty to testify. See what he's doing? He says, listen, I know y'all think that I'm just trashing Christianity and I'm anti-Christian. That's not the case. So there's a particular strain of Christianity that I'm talking about. And it's this Christianity that says, it is okay 
to steal and own other people and be a Christian. So something's wrong with that Christianity. Do you see what Douglas is doing here? You take these two extremes, Christianity and chattel slavery, he opposes them against each other, rightfully so. And he does the same thing that John is doing in our text. John says, you can't love and hate. He says, there's no such thing as light and darkness. It's like oil and water. Don't mix. When it comes to truth and when it comes to lies, those things don't mix. You can't love them both. You've got to pick one. They cannot exist together. Verse 9 and 10 make it clear that one of the primary signs that you are his is your love for fellow Christians. John has been building up to this point, and we're about to see a pattern emerge. John introduced the commandment, affirms his reader, and now he warns the reader and expounds on his previous affirmation. Follow me. John writes, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and abides in him. There is no cause for stumbling. And in him, I'm sorry, there is no cause for stumbling. John has already told, told them that he assumes that as believers, the new commandment is genuinely expressed in their lives. Now he is making a bold and unambiguous declaration that anyone whose life rejects the commandment of love is outside of the covenant community. He says, listen, it is impossible to know him, live in him, and be in the light, yet continue to hate your brother and sister. Their failure, and t- their failure to love and disposition of hate towards fellow Christians was a declaration that they were not children of God, but children of the darkness. They were never regenerated. But an important question we must ask is, what is love? And we know that the new commandment of love is summarized in the second table of the law. Honor your father and mother. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false false testimony against your neighbor. You should not covet your neighbor's wife, house, or property, right? The Gospels make it abundantly clear that these things were not abolished by Jesus, but fulfilled. And John defines it later in 1 John 3.16. He says, by this, we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So rather than give us a definition, John points us to a person and then calls us to action. He says, I'm not just going to give you a definition of love, because we'll take these few things that we heard in that little short definition, and we'll say, all right, I'm doing that. I'm good. No, he points you to a person, and he says this. If you want to know what love is, Look at the life of Jesus and how he laid down his life for people who did not deserve it. Because we love to love people that are lovable. But we have a hard time loving people who are unlovable. And that's what the gospel calls us to. It's not the people who make you comfortable. It's not the people, you know, the communities or, or the cultures that you feel comfortable or you feel good. Yeah, I, I can really blend in with that culture. I, I feel the Lord is calling me there. No, no, the Lord is not calling you to your comfort. He may be calling you there, but not for the reasons that you think. He calls us to love the unlovable because that's what it looks like to lay down our lives, to give up comfort 
to give up convenience, to give up our own self-interest. You know, we're living in a, a really interesting time in our country. Um, I, I, I was joking with Dave last night that you know, I really miss when we elected moderate presidents. Um, and, and, and here's what I mean when I say that. Uh, once, once upon a time, you know, the guys, and, and I don't like these type of people, but I think they may, I'm starting to wonder if they make good presidents. Um, you know, you have these individuals that you can't really pin them down, right? Presidents are always, they, they kind of kind of floated in the middle and kind of walked on both sides of the aisle. Uh, but starting in 2012, we saw a shift um, and, and in politics, and then now the pendulum has swung to the other side. And, 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 and that part doesn't bother me as much. The world's going to do what the world does, right? Um, I think what bothers me more than anything is that we've seen sort of a lot of the divisive rhetoric uh, and a lot of the extreme positions infiltrate the church uh, on all sides. And, and, it's, and it's, it's sad to watch. Um, and some of you, if you're not on social media, this may not be as apparent to you, but for anyone that's on social media, you get exactly what I'm talking about. Um, because you have uh, Christians who have essentially uh, drawn a line in the sand, um, and now everybody's kind of taking a stand uh, for their thing, and they're saying either you're for us or you're against us, right? E- even amongst Christians. And, and, and it's all about somehow, some way, they're trying to protect the gospel, uh, whether it's on the left or whether it's on the right. And it's saying, you know, if you don't believe this, you know, you're not with me. Or, or, or they may not even explicitly say that. They may just put you in a particular camp. So if you mention the word justice, right? you're a social justice warrior. Or if you say you have concerns about some of uh, the, the talk about social justice and the church, all of a sudden you're a, a right-wing uh, Trump lover. And, and it's just sad. And these individuals aren't talking to each other. They're talking about each other and at each other on social media and in the media. And you know the saddest part about that is that our Bible is very clear that those things... Don't make us more about the gospel. Because last time I read my Bible, John, as a matter of fact, says, By this will all men know that you are my disciples. How? Our love for one another. Not by your political ideology. Not where you stand on on certain issues. That may be clear, some are clear and some are unclear. But do you love the children of God enough to be able to have conversations about those issues? Because here's what I found. Both sides of the aisle can learn something from one another if they just take time to listen. And it is sad that we've gotten to a place where we can't even have a conversation about these things and either agree to disagree because we have allowed the world to infiltrate the church. You know what, what the world infiltrating the church looks like? Some, y- y'all worried about homosexuality infiltrating the church. Listen, that's going to happen in some churches, and it's sad, and usually those churches were doomed from the beginning. There were things already unfolding there. And it's, but the vast majority, that's not the issue at the church. I think that's a distraction that Satan is using to scare the heck out of us. 
what's really going to infiltrate the church is the divisiveness that we see in the culture and in the world today. Because, listen, you can try to assume that somehow your politics are going to save America as we know it, but I guarantee you, <laughs> you're just making it worse. Because either way, it's going to happen, because the pendulum is going to swing. And you, yeah, you ever seen those movies that this guy's working really hard this way to try to stop something? And somehow, some way, the way things work, he doesn't even realize that he's actually enabling it to happen? And I think that's what happens. When we begin to try to protect culture and when we begin to try to protect society because we live in, in, a, in, in a country that where we enjoy a lot of freedoms and a lot of us are afraid of losing those freedoms. So what we do is we try to protect the country. And guess what? God is saying, I didn't call you to do that because that's not your home. That is not your home. You should be all about the church and about building God's kingdom not about protecting this earthly kingdom that will one day pass away. Whether it passes away because of a liberal ideology or whether it passes away when Jesus returns on his white horse and he says, you know what, I'm coming back and I'm coming to take over. It's going to pass away. We need to stop trying to hold on to it and realize that this is not our home. This temporal thing is going to pass away and we're living for something eternal. And we be, when we begin to find unity with others because of their political ideology, not because of their love for Christ, something is wrong in the church. And it scares me. So how do we love? How do we unify the body? First, I'll tell you how you won't do it. You can't do it in your own flesh. In verse 11, John expands on verse 9, using darkness to illustrate what sin and hatred does in the heart of the unregenerate. And as we've already established, darkness describes the spiritual kingdom that unbelievers and those who practice sinful behavior operate under. John is saying that they're blind and they can't see themselves. They can't see the foolishness of their sinful behavior. And they can't see the beauty of the gospel. Their kingdom is not just absent of love. It's absent of God. Listen, we, you have to understand, when people come here, you guys have probably know what culture shock is. There's a lot of military people here, so you guys have to move around quite a bit. Some of you have probably spent time internationally. You know that when you go to cultures, there's some things that they do that we don't do. They're not normal here in the United States, right? Um, or you don't really have to go to another country. You can just go to another neighborhood or another culture, right? Um, and, and you'll realize that things that you think uh, are normal uh, in, in, in your culture, white, Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon color, uh, culture, right? Those things are not necessarily normal uh, in uh, traditional black culture, right? So one example, real quick. Um, I, I was raised in traditional black Baptist church, right? Um, now I have transitioned post-college and all that, into a southern white Presbyterian church. The church I attend actually is more multi-ethnic, but um, because of my relationships in the domination, my position in the, in the seminary, um, and I preach from time to time in various PCA churches, I, I find myself worshiping in very, very white, traditional southern 
churches, like, like Delta, Mississippi, like small town Yazoo City, white, traditional Southern Presbyterian churches, right? And I can tell you that when it comes to expressions of worship, those things are like night and day, right? A um, few things you get in, in the traditional black church, you get about four to five selections, right? Uh, not two or three hymns. Uh, there's a choir, and we sway when we move. Um, and, and I'm not a music guy, but I think it's like we clap on one, two. Yeah, you guys clap on one sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, she's like me. <laughs> right, those things are just different, right? Here's the reality. I can learn how to worship, and I have learned, in a white Southern Presbyterian church, and I enjoy it, right? And I go back to my traditional black church, and I also enjoy it, right? But somebody who is in the kingdom of darkness, who, has, who is now entering or among those who live in the kingdom of light, cannot take on cultural practices without supernatural intervention. Does that make sense? Listen, when people come into the church from the outside, they should think that you're kind of weird. <laughs> right? They should, they should experience culture shock. For, you know, we're always trying, to, people are always trying to make the world, I mean, make the church look like the world, right? And some, sometimes that has to do with, you know, how we do worship. Sometimes that has to do with uh, um, uh, moralistic behavior, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why all these churches are saying, listen, don't believe the Bible, embrace Christianity, and your church will, churches will grow. And that's a lot of the pit of hell. It's a terrible uh, growth strategy also uh, because it has not worked historically. Denominations and churches that reject the Bible, that begin to open themselves up to these things, begin to die. Just ask the Presbyterian Church of the USA. They're not growing. They're dying. Right? You, the church, cannot assume that somehow you're going to be able to put together some growth strategy that is inconsistent, inconsistent with Scripture, that is somehow going to make Grace Bible Church, or make any other church for that matter, the most popular church in Kali. It's not going to happen. Therefore, since we are unable to love in our own strength, we must look to the one who is greater than us to help us to love. And therefore, I appeal to you to abide in Christ and the word of God so that you are enabled to love as he has loved you. In closing, near the end of chapter 2, John teaches us how to love. In verse 24, he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then in 2 John chapter 9, or verse 9, I'm sorry, he says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So the, the question that we need to ask ourselves as we go back out into the world, what does it mean to abide in Christ? 
One of our professors, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, sums up what it means to abide in Christ. He provides three implications for abiding in Christ. And he says this. He says, abiding in Christ means three things. It means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. So fill our minds. That means that this, Christ is intimately connected with what you do with your Bibles. Christ is intimately connected with what you do with your Bibles. You have to be readers and students of the Word of God. You have to study God's Word as Christians. Listen, if you're an opinionated person about the church and about Christianity um, and about all these other issues, but you're not in your Bible, just stop. Because you don't have discernment to know whether or not you're actually teaching and communicating what thus says the Lord. You've got to be in your Bible. Listen, theology is not just for pastors and preachers, but it's for every single one of you. And whether you do that formally through seminary or whether you do it informally, right? You need to be students of the Word. You need to know, you need to study theology. Theology is just the study of God. That's all it is. It's like biology is the study of life. It's probably about the only thing I remember from biology. Theology is the study of God. You want to know God more? You've got to read your Bible. You've got to study it. And you've got you to you gotta do these things. Secondly, his word should direct our wills. As Christ's word dwells in, in us and, and his spirit fills us, we begin to pray in a way that is consistent with his will. So as you're reading your Bible and as it's filling your mind, all of a sudden it's begin to, it begins to transform your heart. And you begin to change the way that you live. Your lifestyle looks different. That has to happen. This is a three-step process in a sense. And then finally, it begins to transform your affections. All of a sudden, you don't love the things that you used to love. The sinful behaviors that were once attracted to you, that you were obsessed with, that you were addicted to, they begin to fade away as you fill your mind with the Word of God, and it begins to direct your action. Your, your, your affections will begin to transform. And all of a sudden now, your life looks completely different. But it takes time. It takes commitment. It takes regularity. We have to do these things because every single day, Scripture is calling us to go back to God's Word, to lean on His Word, to learn more, to study more, to meet Him, to meditate on it. Not just like a student in a classroom, but to let this consume you. And this doesn't mean that you're studying every single day for every single hour. It does mean that you're studying it regularly, and that you're meditating on it consistently, always. That's what it means to fill you. That's what it means to abide in Christ. To abide in God, you don't need to perform extraordinary acts. Love your Bible. Love your Bible. Sit under good preaching. Many of you, if you're here, you're already doing that. 
Commit to a body of believers. And committing just doesn't mean showing up on every Sunday. It means being involved in the lives of the people that you worship with Sunday in and Sunday out. Small groups, one-on-one relationships, hospitality. Not entertaining, but hospitality. Having people over, doing life with other individuals. Receive the sacraments, as we're going to be doing this morning. And pray earnestly. We've got to have lives of prayer. Praying that all the things that you begin to see yourself coming short in. Praying that God would give you strength. Praying that God would change your heart. Praying, God, that he would draw you closer to him. Praying for other people. Praying for your church. Praying for your pastor and his family. Praying for your elders. Asking God what you need. And God, hey, I, I am struggling with this. I need this. And then, as Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Because if what I'm asking is not in line with what you want for my life, that is scary. But I want it. And I, not, I trust you, and I trust your will. Then you too will be able to abide in the Son and in the Father. You'll be able, enabled to love. You'll be enabled to love God more and more, and you'll be enabled to love your brothers and your sisters and your enemies and your neighbors regularly and daily. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us without direction. Not leaving us to figure this out on our own. But through your spirit, you've given us all that we need in your word. And your spirit comforts us and illuminates our mind. Father, I pray that your word would go out with power, that your people would meditate on these truths. Father, if there is someone in the room who does not know you in their sins, Father, I pray that the message of the gospel would be heard and received. Father, I pray if there is a a teen who is wandering away from you, who is, is struggling with the reality that the world is attractive and the world is, is promising all these other things, whether, it's be, whether it be acceptance, whether it be popularity, whether it be pleasure. Father, that the word of God would pierce their hearts right now and that they would begin to see you as more beautiful, more lovely. Do a work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.